0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: And a very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along. Shortly heading off to Germany where thousands of tractors are blocking roads, highways and traffic as farmers are protesting against proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. We'll get to that before the news headlines at half past 12. And also today, a leading fresh food analyst says the two big supermarket chains have far less pricing power in the fruit and vegetable market than you might think. We'll check out his logic this hour on the Country Hour. It is six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia. And on the ABC Listen app. We'll kick off today with a look at some input costs because farmers can expect to pay historically high prices for fertiliser this year, but nowhere near the record highs seen just a couple of years ago. Well, that's how Matt Dalgleish from Episode3.net is reading the market as farmers start to plan their seeding programs for 2024. Matt, how are the prices looking at this point in the season?
2: Oh, in terms of phosphates, you're probably looking at the moment, and this is a free-on-board price in Australian dollar terms in terms of a global price compared uh, for an Australian dollar you know, equivalent, phosphates are around that 800 to $900 a tonne and the urea pricing is around that $550, $600 a tonne.
1: All right. So can you put that into historical perspective for us? Because we have had some uh, real record prices in recent years, so it's nowhere near that, but still pretty high
2: yeah that's right if you if you look at the urea side at the very peaks it nearly got to 1400 dollars a ton and again that's the the global price in australian dollar terms. so episode three we've got a a global model that gives us an idea of what the fair value should be um so it nearly got to 1400 back in kind of late 21 i think it was um had a few peaks in fact um through that 2022 year but the, the first peak was the highest at 1400. And in terms of the phosphates, you had to go back to, again, it was probably a oh, uh, second quarter of 2022 or thereabouts, and you had that peaking just under $1,800 uh, Aussie a tonne.
1: So a little bit of relief this year compared to those prices, but still high against the average.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, those prices were exceptionally high. When you look at something like prior to that most recent peaks, we saw through all that... You know, disruption in in the Black Sea, predominantly, and what was happening in Ukraine, was was driving some of those price hikes. Um, but prior to that, you had you know previous peaks in DAP uh, around the seven hundred dollar a ton. So, so even you know, where we are now, you know, eight hundred to nine hundred is is higher than the previous peaks for DAP. And when you're talking urea. Um, previous peaks were you know about the 500 level maybe 550 so we're kind of back to what would be considered to be historically fairly high pricing but nothing near where we were you know during those very elevated prices um, again through that Russian Ukrainian issue.
1: And what about the supplies for the upcoming year um, how does it look around the world where we get most of our fertiliser supplies?
2: Uh, Well, in terms of the phosphate side, so MAP and DAP, um, China's a big exporter of that, and towards the end of last year, they started to restrict their uh, exports out of the country because they're having their own concerns around internal domestic supply to be able to supply their own agricultural sectors. Um, So that caused a bit of a disruption to the global picture there, and that started to push pricing higher for phosphates. But on the urea side if you look at the volumes we've seen coming through even though we get a lot of our urea from the middle east and north african region and there's been a bit of problems with um, transport and logistics through the red sea um, there are concerns that that might cause some delays because some of those shipping lanes they're having to divert around africa because of these problems with pirates and houthis houthi rebels in the red sea causing issues with um, getting the more direct route uh, being utilized but it hasn't really restricted supplies yet. Um, it's just a, a potential concern. And l- last year we did see some record levels of urea imports into the country. You know, for 2023 we touched on um, 3 million metric tonnes, so that was the highest we've seen it on record in terms of volumes of imports. And that's even if you include um, our domestic production added on top, which is no longer being manufactured in, in Gibson Island in Queensland. That, that kind of stopped for 2023, but we actually imported enough to cover what we, what we missed producing ourselves as well. So it's, it's been a, a strong year for volumes of, uh, of imports of urea.
1: So does that mean with that record coming in for last year, record supplies coming in, does that mean we won't have any supply issues here in Australia for the upcoming well, season?
2: Well, yeah, look, we did have well, – you, you might have noted last year there were some concerns around getting access to urea and certainly on the eastern states that was the case, not so much on the west – um, but when we look at the volumes coming in and where they were distributed, um, the West actually got a reasonable uh, high level compared to previous years. So so there looked to be enough supply in the West. And there was also, I think, a little bit more reluctance to buy in the west because you guys headed into a much drier season whereas in the eastern states as you've seen on the news probably recently we've been a lot of lot of rain and moisture in the system um and and that kind of contributed to increased demand that the prospects of that you know good cropping season in the east so i think there might have been just a bit of a mismatch of of logistics and supply in australia and that did cause some localized shortages certainly on the eastern side but I don't think the West experienced that anywhere near as much as uh, we did
1: on the East. And what about, you know, in the lead up to seeding for this season, how do you feel the industry or, or you know, uh, growers are feeling about it, producers are feeling about it? Because here in the West, we sort of ended up with a 14 million tonne grain harvest. There's not a lot of soil moisture around and really hoping for some rain kind of by March, I guess. Uh, that's the situation here. How does that compare to the east and and how do you see the the demand for fertiliser this season?
2: Yeah, look, I think in the east, given that wet we had in an uncharacteristic time of year, um, I think there was some that had harvest disrupted in the east. Um, And then obviously, you know, there are some areas that have had too much rain more recently too, which is good. It's a good thing to set us up for the next season in terms of soil moisture. Um, but it has been quite disruptive around harvest. Um, I think generally though, confidence in the East is, is reasonably good, again, because of that level of rain we've had and it was, it was one of those things where if you looked at the Bureau forecast um, leading into this time of year, you know, three months ago, um, it, we, we got much more rain than what we anticipated. Um, so that has actually um, boosted confidence in both the cropping side and the livestock sector for that matter.
1: And what about demand for fertilizer from other countries, Matt? Are we going to see, you know, high interest in, you know, those supplies, you know, potentially raising that price of fertilizer as we go into the year?
2: Yeah, there is a prospect. Um, the big one at the moment has been Brazil. So, um, if you look and see what's happening there, um, as at the end of last year the Brazilian farmers had bought about 60% of their needs for the upcoming season, uh, and normally by the end of the year they would have had about 80% of their fertiliser purchased, but um, there's been some dry uh, weather impacting upon Brazil as well, and, and also um, the soybean pricing has been a bit low and they're a big um, supplier of global soybeans. So with that pricing a bit depressed, the Brazilian farmers have been a bit reluctant to go and purchase their fertiliser, so that has taken some of the demand away from the market presently. Um, And and so that's kind of allowed for for pricing to to start to kind of decline a little bit just because of that drop in demand. But it is a bit of a mixed picture because you've got one side, you've got this issue in China and the issue in the Red Sea and and supply generally on that side being a bit restricted. But then you've got demand also easing in a key um, big market like Brazil. So they're kind of netting each other out a little bit at the moment.
1: Matt, do you have any insights into how farmers in Australia now approach their fertilizer purchasing, particularly after being stung you know with those really record prices just going back a couple of years, has there been a change since then about approaching to you know jumping in early, getting some in the shed or just waiting it out a little bit to see how the the market pans out
2: I, th- I think they are trying to be a bit more proactive absolutely um, The difficulty in that fertilizer space and it 's something at episode three that we 're trying to rectify too is that Lack of information, lack of tr- price transparency, lack of you know knowledge of what's going on in that supply chain in terms of where things are being distributed, so you know a bit more openness within the market would be useful to allow participants like farmers to to get a better grip and to manage their inputs a little bit more successfully. Um, that would be good and, and certainly episode three try as much as we can with the data available to to give more information, but it'd be nice to see the industry actually come a step up to the table too and, and, and provide a bit more insight and, and maybe a bit more price transparency, transparency would be good, good as well.
1: Matt, good to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers, Belinda. Market analyst Matt Delgleesh with his thoughts on fertiliser prices in 2024. 14 past 12.
0: On ABC Radio WA, you're with Belinda Barischetti for the WA Country Hour.
1: A Pilbara gold mine has been forced to suspend its processing operations over safety concerns on site. Newmont says processing was suspended at its Telfer mine, 400 kilometres southeast of Port Hedland, after cracking and seepage was detected on an internal embankment of its tailings storage facilities. Now, these tailings storage facilities, or TSFs, are known more commonly as tailings dams, and they hold the byproducts from mining and often contain highly toxic liquid and waste. The company notified WorkSafe of an issue with its tailings dam on Christmas Eve, and Monday of this week, WorkSafe issued Newmont a prohibition notice which limits the use of affected parts of the TSF until repair work is done. Newmont says it's continuing to work on a comprehensive plan to restart processing operations at the site and it's been liaising closely with regulators to facilitate the safe reopening of the TSFs. Premier Roger Cook says the government expects Newmont to address the issue. Oh,
3: look, this is a very concerning development. Uh, We expect Newmont to be able to ensure that their facility operates safely and with all the environmental conditions in mind. So we expect them to be able to address that issue.
1: The share market hasn't been notified of the suspension and the company refused to answer the ABC's questions over the extent of the impact on operations or a timeline on when processing might be back online. WorkSafe says mine safety inspectors are continuing to monitor the situation, and you can read more about this story. It's online for you right now. All you need to do is search ABC Telfer Gold. ABC Telfer Gold for the online story. 16 past 12. In other resources news, the Waruna Shire president says he has a bit of trepidation for the future, but is remaining positive after aluminium giant Alcoa announced the closure of its Kwinana refinery this week. The Shire of Waruna is home to the company's Wager Up refinery, which is a major employer for the region. The curtailment of operations at Kwinana will see 750 workers lose their jobs over the next year or so and leave the company with its Wager Up and Pinjarra refineries. Waruna Shire President Mike Walmsley says there could be an upside for his region.
4: Yeah, look, I, I, I guess a little bit of trepidation, I guess, about what that means for Alcoa going forward, and especially Alcoa being a large part of our community, just what the ramifications for closing Kwinana would be. But at this stage, look, I haven't had a lot of feedback or concerns to that matter. In fact, there's potential an upside to Kwinana closing as far as perhaps potentially people shifting down to Waruna, taking up some of the positions down here. So at this stage, look, not, nothing too major.
5: Because mm, now that they have said that they will shut Quinana down, are you hoping to see the money go elsewhere, such as Wager up?
4: Oh, look, that would be a great outcome for us. You know, parts of the original State Agreement Act sort of had Alcoa promoting uh, housing and some of the things that make a town more vibrant. Um, so, look, potentially, if that, you know, some of those conditions were reenacted or, or met. Potentially, there could be some increase in population in our town, and one of the things that is important for us is sort of just slowly growing our rate base. So, look, there, there could be an upside to that if, if some of the um, parts of the quinana plant were redeployed down here. That you know, that certainly would bring employment to our area, and uh, that could be a good that could be a good thing.
5: Because quite a few jobs they're saying are at stake here. Is there room in Waruna for people to come down?
4: Look, at the moment, Waruna's is really struggling for housing like a lot of uh, towns through the Peel and, and the south-west. Um, rentals are really high and availability is really low. So, you know, it could bring about, you know, a potential subdivision or some, some extra housing, which would be a good outcome for us. But there, there certainly is limited accommodation at the moment. That doesn't mean in the broader area that you know, potentially there might be housing that people could shift down from the metro or some pieces like that may take up housing in potentially Mandra. Pinjara, Harvey, or Waruna to uh, service the employment needs of Wagerup. there's
5: numbers available online, Mike, from our COA that says Wagerup is producing less than half of what Pinjara is at the moment. Are there concerns that Wagerup may be next on the chopping block?
4: not that i 'm aware of i don 't believe so. Wadedrop has always been a smaller plant. I mean Coronana Pin- was built first and then Pinjara and then Wagerup. so Pinjarra and WagerUp have both have been slowly increasing their production and pinjara has always been the larger refinery. I, I would think in time that WagerUp potentially may catch up in terms of production, but Pinjarra has, has always been the larger refinery and I don't believe that there'd be a call for WagerUp to be closing at this point. I, in fact, I, I would think potentially Alcoa might be looking at lifting production to sort of uh, counteract the, the issue that, of lowering production with the closure of Kwinana.
5: Hypothetically, if WagerUp was to close in years to come... How would your shire go? Because it's obviously built so much on wager up.
4: Oh, look, certainly. And, and I guess one of the issues of council is trying to broad land uses around the refinery. And, and currently there's some expansion in horticulture, certainly some uh, expansion in agriculture you know, broadly as far as sort of beef and bits and pieces go. This was always the traditional dairy industry, which is all but gone from this the shire sadly now. Look, there was always going to be a point in time that Alcoa would potentially leave the shire, that it, it is a mine and mines have a life. So I, I guess, you know, if it was to close in the immediate future, I think the effects would be quite huge. Alcoa do employ a lot of locals, especially up at the mine site. The shire is currently being sort of inundated with uh, renewable energy areas as, as far as solar, perhaps potentially wind, uh, also a green hydrogen plant has been slated. So there, there is other Perhaps industry's on the horizon and if Alcoa's not potentially using that refinery for bauxite, you know, there is other potential things that that refinery could be used for. There's a power plant in there currently, there's um, other bits and pieces of that plant that may be redeployed for other uses
1: a Shire President Mike Wormsley speaking to Kate Forrester. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Shortly, an update from the newsroom for you. We'll go through the headlines. Check the weather around Western Australia and just keep a special eye on that monsoon trough to the north of the country. How does it look today? Where is it potentially tracking? We'll get the details from the Bureau shortly. First, though, Heading overseas now, thousands of tractors are blocking roads, highways and traffic in Germany as farmers are protesting proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. The cuts are part of the German government 2024 budget plans and include proposed changes to diesel taxes and vehicle tax exemptions for farmers. Jessica Parker was in the state of Brandenburg to meet one of those protests and see what kind of effect it was having.
6: It's becoming a familiar sound in Germany. Convoys of tractors roaming and roaring far beyond farmland. When a farmer protest comes to town, you really can't miss them. They're obviously very big vehicles. There are a lot of them. And they're extremely noisy. This demo rolls into the northeastern town of Oranienburg.
3: It's, it's like a bottle which is blown up, and that was too much, and now we are really angry.
6: Christophe Plass, a potato farmer, rages at plans to phase out a tax break on diesel fuel. But he's also angry at other environmental rules coming from government and the EU.
3: The farmers say, oh, we can do. We know how to do our work. And uh, there is so much in the Green Deal that says, you have to do it like that, and you have to do it like that. And nobody sees what's, what, what is the cost at the end.
6: But a lot of those measures you're talking about, they're about making farming more sustainable, greening the economy, isn't that a good thing?
7: Yeah, that's a good thing, but uh, we
3: have to do the process with the farmers. We We are not saying we cannot change anything or we won't change. We're changing since years and years and years, and now it's too much.
6: Radio, service. These demos are even getting mentions on local radio traffic reports. The level of disruption does vary. But at a nearby petrol station, Alexandra, an occupational therapist, says for her it's a big problem. Because our patients can't get to us. My mother works as a dentist and they had to close their practice. The far right Alternative for Deutschland has recently been polling higher than ever before, and the party is seeking to capitalize on the farmers' protests. The tractors park up opposite the town hall, and the council leader, Dirk Blettermann, a member of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's Social Democratic Party, comes out to meet
0: us. There's quite a lot of talking Germany down right now. If you look at our economic prospects, it's not great. But if you look at the big profits our businesses have made, this has to all be seen in the balance.
6: This farmer's demo wraps up, but Germany's bracing for plenty more.
1: Jessica Parco reporting from the BBC's World Business Report. 25 past 12, and a wheat belt farmer is hoping her nomination for the 2024 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award will highlight the role farming families play in feeding the nation. Three Wheatbelt women have been selected as finalists in this year's awards from backgrounds including bee education and the defence industry. Wandering farmer Nicola Callagher is the chair of a not-for-profit group, Farming Champions, and runs the annual event Farmer on Your Plate, which connects Perth consumers with local producers. Nicola says she wants a closer relationship between the country and the city.
8: The connection between country and city I don't think has ever really broken. I think what has changed is that we don't have a country cousin or a grandparent now, you know, time has moved on and maybe emotionally and physically, the distance between city and country has just been a matter of distance. Farmer on your plate, we're trying to bring that um, connection closer again. What I would really like to share the message of is that I've come from a non- non- non-agricultural background myself. I'm aware now living in the country, the passion that is actually put into the production of our food. For me, this message needs to be celebrated. We want to share and are willingly willing to share this information with consumers so that they are able to support us as we are supporting them.
5: How did you Mm -hmm. feel when you first heard that you were going to be nominated for this?
8: Oh Well, I was so, so pleased (laughs) that that I could represent our Farming Champions um, uh, Committee and really promote the amount of work that our volunteers have done to um, support small, um, small businesses like farming, farming families in Western Australia who also value the work that they do and their intellectual property and how they have so much to share with consumers. And the Farmer on the Plate event that we, we do every year, it gives them a platform where they can actually share this direct with the consumer. What have you actually been
5: nominated for this year?
8: It's the Rural Women's Award of Western Australia. So it's a uh, an award that recognises the women's contribution to communities, um, whether it's in agriculture or just in the regions, and it's run by DPERD and nationally it is um, organized by AgriFutures. So it's a really um, prestige award and I'm honoured to be part of the alumni now, my two fellow finalists, Jay and Mandy, also. We're part of a pretty special group of women who have made so many changes in our agricultural or in our rural space and I'm really honoured to be part. Of it.
5: If you win, what are you planning on doing? Because it's
8: prize money, I understand that you will win. The, the winner receives $15,000. I think in that I need to focus on my public speaking. I am so passionate about agriculture and our farming families and, and what they bring. And I really want to make sure that I can articulate that properly to really, really support our members, bring this message of food security and the role that farming families play. In that. I'd like to work on partnerships, uh, commercial partnerships or um, uh, sponsorships to build the event. So we only hold one event per year. We have an amazing team but I'm just the chair of farming champions and ultimately and um, once we've built proper foundations across our state I would really like to, to make this a national event. A hot topic of conversation at the moment for
5: a lot of people in WA is, and Australia, is the cost of living. Going Mm -hmm. into a new year, what are some producers saying that you're speaking to? How are they feeling?
8: Oh, I think the um, agriculturalists are forever the optimists, aren't they? (laughs) You you plant the seed um, awaiting a future. I think that's just the way we have always been. Um, But I think we just need to make sure that the consumers um, are aware of what we do and the value that farming families bring. So so when you've got the connection back to the farmer, you, you've got the opportunity to say these are the prices that we receive at the farm gate and these are the prices that you are buying at. And we need to work on what's happening there in the middle. There's a lot of talk about that part in the middle there. And in order for farming families to innovate, to provide the best products that we can for our consumers which is nutritionally best practice, best wealth, animal welfare handling methods, all these things, this all comes as part of the cost um, of, the, of the product, but also what is the value of the product.
1: Wandering farmer Nicola Kellia, speaking to Kate Forrester, Nicola is one of three WA finalists in the AgriFutures Rural Women's Awards, Mandy Walker from Wongan Hills and Jay Page from Perth are the other two finalists. The WA winner is going to be announced in March and will receive a $15,000 bursary to go towards business plans as well as any professional development training. So good luck to the three. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour, Jonathan Beale in the studio with the headlines.
0: Thanks Belinda. A third person accused of murdering a man in the South West has been remanded in custody after appearing in the Bunbury Magistrates Court. 30-year-old James Terence Hunt is charged with the murder of 68-year-old Raymond Smith, whose body was found on the outskirts of Greenbushes last week. Mr Hunt and his two co-accused are due in court later this month. The Premier has accused the Liberal Party of engaging in political opportunity by criticising job losses at Alcoa's Quinana refinery. Roger Cook's comments come after Alcoa announced it would be halting production of the alumina refinery with the loss of hundreds of jobs. The Liberals say government environmental regulations played a significant part in Alcoa's decision. Alcoa says its decision was purely a commercial one. And a man has been charged over an incident in Tom Price where a woman was seriously injured. Police were called to a home in the Pilbara town early yesterday morning when they discovered the injured woman. She was conveyed to Perth for treatment. A 35-year-old Kimberley man, who was known to the victim, has been charged with causing aggravated grievous bodily harm. Morning, is Belinda at 1.
1: Jonathan, thank you for the update. 28 to 1.
0: This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Between now and the news at one o'clock, taking a look at the damage to fruit that's occurred in Victoria uh, had some real wild weather. Rain, hail caused all sorts of damage in the Goulburn Valley, so sort of north of Melbourne, and then over in the Sunraysia area too, sort of in that, um, what is it, northwest of Victoria. So we'll take a look at that damage and the implications for prices. Also, we'll catch up with an analyst uh, looking into supermarkets who says that the big chains have far less pricing power in the fruit and vegetable market than you first might think. So we'll get his analysis Shortly. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is at the Bureau this afternoon. And let's start with a look at this monsoon trough. It's uh, still not a topic, tropical low. Is it likely to develop into a cyclone at this point? Are we any closer to knowing?
9: Good afternoon, Belinda. Um, there's still a fair amount of uncertainty in the current gardens available to us, but we suddenly have a, a monsoon that is developing across northern Australia. And uh, it is slowly ramping up and... Uh, it looks like we may see a tropical form, a tropical low form, uh, in the Timor Sea uh, or in the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf. If not today, then certainly by tomorrow, we'll see a low spinning up uh, to the north of the Kimberley coast, just offshore. Um, So the system is uh, likely to be uh, slow-moving or may move towards the south uh, over the coming days once it forms. Uh, Slowly, though, it may become slow-moving near the uh, NTWA border. If it remains over water, it has got a small window of opportunity to develop into a tropical cyclone. So yesterday we were saying there was a moderate chance on on Saturday. Um, We've reduced that to a low chance now it you really need the system uh, to spin up uh, over a couple of days before it it may become into a tropical cyclone um sunday does uh, still remain a moderate chance of a cyclone um the guidance is firming up a little bit it looks like it may head towards the anti coast rather than the north kimberley coast however Simply because there is so much uncertainty. For example, if it becomes slow-moving over water uh, this weekend, uh, and specifically sort of in that uh, southern parts of the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, it's likely uh, to produce uh, some significant rain uh, over the northern Kimberley. If it moves over the uh, Top End uh, or sort of over land later in the weekend or early next week, it's likely to, to track inland across the Northern Territory, but. Um, in the in the general longer term outlook, it may curve back towards the NTWA border, so those uh, significant rains may continue over the Eastern Kimberley into next week. Um, so our current uh, analysis is that uh, some some good falls are possible across the Northern Kimberley. Uh, so today into tomorrow. Um, Uh, increased shower and thunderstorm activity, about 20 to 30 millimetres. There could be isolated heavier falls, 30 to 50 millimetres. And that's a similar story for tomorrow. Saturday, we do see an uh, an increase in the rainfall amount, especially if the system becomes slow-moving near the WA-NT border. We could see isolated heavier falls, 50 to 80 millimetres. If the system continues to intensify, then potentially we could see much heavier falls over northern Kimberley, uh, the area north of about Waman Lake Argyle, Um, Cananara, Kulumburu could see widespread falls, 40 to 70 millimeters, and isolated falls up to 100 millimeters per day. We are starting to see increased shower and thunderstorm activity across much of the Kimberley. So if you look at Broome Radar, for example, we haven't seen any rain in Broome for the whole month of December, very little rainfall in January, but there is a line of thunderstorms uh, today, for example, heading towards Broome. So some promising signs of places that haven't seen much rain uh, during uh, the last few months. And with that monsoon ramping up uh, across northern Australia, we'll see a little bit more rainfall, especially across southern parts of the Kimberley over the next few days.
1: And thanks for going through the details of what it is at the moment, that monsoon trough. Uh, more details, though, for northern and uh, eastern parts of western Australia. Anything else to cover?
9: Yes, so we have got a trough that's extending uh, from the inland parts of the G- Gascoyne into the goldfields and to the Eucla, and today it is generating um, scattered uh, showers and the old a thunderstorm. Very little rainfall associated with these uh, with these thunderstorms, with showers and thunderstorms, but that activity is likely to persist and spread across much of the Pilbara, the interior, the Gascoigne, goldfields and into the Eucla. This weekend and into next week, um, and this is due to a, another trough that's going to form on the west coast. So, a combination of these two troughs will will cause a fair amount of instability across much of uh, northern and eastern parts of uh, WA. Tomorrow, today, tomorrow and into the weekend. So um, generally, uh, most of these thunderstorms uh, will be on the dry side, so not much rainfall, but some areas may see some some good falls. So um, today we're going to see about two to five millimetres uh, across the eastern parts of the Gascoigne and, uh, uh, and into the gold fields. And then from tomorrow, uh, sort of similar areas, uh, but those rainfall amounts across much of uh, the Gascoyne and the interior and, uh, and gold fields may increase to about maybe two to five millimetres. And some areas may see very isolated 10 to 15 millimetres, especially heading into Sunday and Monday.
1: And then, Ange, let's take a look now at the Southwest Land Division. How does it look this afternoon and for the rest of the week?
9: With that west coast trough developing uh, from today, it is going to deepen from tomorrow. It's likely to move offshore on, on Saturday and Sunday. We have got a firm ridge of high pressure as well to the south uh, to the south of the state. So a combination of that west coast trough and that high pressure system is generating a lot of heat across much of southern WA, including the northern parts of WA as well. Um, and we'll see uh, very hot conditions extend into the southwest of the land division over the coming days. So temperatures are likely to reach a uh the 40s, the low 40s through much of the central red belt, the central west and also the lower west. We'll see heat wave conditions, low to severe intensity heat wave extend across lower west and into the southwest, so a lot of heat. Now with that west coast trough uh, deepening over the next few days, the thunderstorm activity that I have mentioned uh, that is going to affect the northern and eastern parts of the state will also extend across much of the southwest land division. Today we're seeing isolated thunderstorm activity across across the eastern parts of the um, Central Weed Belt, and it is going to slowly extend westwards. So tomorrow, um, uh, the thunderstorm activity is likely to extend all the way to the uh, to the Scarp and maybe extend all the way to the West Coast uh, Saturday into Sunday. Um we have seen very dry conditions in recent times across the Southwest Land Division. So these thunderstorms, there will produce a little bit of rainfall. It's going to be a mix of dry and wet thunderstorms, a bit of uh, hybrid thunderstorm activity happening across the Southwest Land Division over the next few days. The further west we go, the less rainfall will be associated with these thunderstorms. So because there will be, be, well, there will be dry, so that means there will be very little rainfall falling out of these thunderstorms. There is that heightened risk of dry lightning. And as a result of that, we're going to see elevated bushfire risk across much of the southwest land division uh, over the next few days going into next week. Um, So um, these very hot conditions and some windy conditions in the morning uh, and that added a heightened risk of dry lightning is going to cause elevated uh, risk of bushfire over the coming days. So to summarise, tropical low in the north, but a prolonged period of heat and elevated bushfire in the south, Belinda.
1: And then the warnings this afternoon, Ange?
9: Yes, so we have got a heatwave warning out for a lot of districts. Um, so, we have got an extreme heat wave warning out for the Goldfields, Eucla and South Interior districts. A severe heat wave warning for the Kimberley, Pilbara, Gascoigne, North Interior, and the Central Weed Belt districts. Um, and uh, we have also got uh, some uh, uh, coastal wind warnings out uh, for much of the West and, and Southwest coasts of WA. Um, So just to add a little bit about the fire dangers, we are going to see high fire dangers across much of southern WA uh, over the next few days. Not likely to see any severe fire dangers yet, but it's something to keep an eye out for, especially if we see those very hot conditions and windy conditions uh, 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 continue, especially on Saturday and Sunday.
1: Angeline, thanks for the heads up. Appreciate that. It is 18 to 1, and Michelle Stanley in the studio with the rainfall figures.
10: You're looking at the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. In the north, over 5 millimetres again. It's just the Kimberley, and it's really those same locations that are continuing to get any rainfall, so they'll be very happy. DeVisa had 9, Diggers Rest 10, Emma Gorge 8, Cunanara Aero had 32 and the Checkpoint 15, Old Mornington Homestead 5, Theta 21, and Truscott had 14. A millimetre at a couple of places in the Gascoigne, and a or two in the gold fields. In the south, there was nothing more than a mill. And that was mainly in that southern coastal region, which has been the case for the last little while. And I will just mention, um, Angeline Prasad talked about those um, heatwave warnings. And I think Marble Bar could be set to break a record of the most days over 43 degrees. I think the record is currently 27. And I think by this weekend, it may have broken that. So thoughts and press to everyone at Marble Bar <laughs> um, because and those at the stations that where it gets... Even hotter yeah. because it is—it's um, a tricky place to be in January.
1: Yeah, I don't want to be any part of that no,
10: record. No, I'm happy very happy to be about in it. Perth at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Phil. Michelle, thank you for that.
1: It is seventeen to one here on the Country Hour. I should say too, no markets today. Uh, it's a double header at Mount Barker, so it is on today, but it's sort of across two days. So we'll get the full details of the Mount Barker Cattle Market here on the Country Hour tomorrow. Now, over to Victoria, where the recent wild weather, including rain and hail, has wiped out more than $10 million worth of fruit from the Goulburn Valley region just north of Melbourne. It's not the only region in the state to be affected, with the Sunraysia region in the state's northwest, the country's largest stone fruit-producing region, also assessing significant damage with the recent rain. Michael Crisera is the Grower Services Manager with Fruit Growers Victoria, and he says the degree of damage varies from one farm to the next.
3: It's fairly close to about 500 hectares that's been impacted and varying levels from about you know 40% to 100% affected fruit, mostly um, apples and pears and also plums.
11: Some places had 100% uh, of their fruit affected? Yes. What does that mean for them going forward?
3: Oh, look, it just means that they've got to think about what they do with that fruit. So they'll more than likely um make that decision as they get closer to harvest. But, you know, that fruit, most of that fruit may be harvested for juice. Anything sort of that 70% below, some growers may try to pick that for class one or composite pack. It just, yeah, it just depends. It's sort of people wait and see how things heal over. But historically, hail tends to... <laughs> look worse as the season progresses sometimes. On the tree too, visually you can think there's 30-40%, but there may be 50-60% damage there.
11: And what does that damage actually look like? Is it just sort of external damage or can it cause some internal damage as well to the fruit?
3: Um, well most of it's external. The fruit actually surprisingly does recover quite well. But yeah, just the way it looks, you know, depending how severe the damage is, most of that fruit will be unsalable. And it was quite large hail on the 2nd of January. So um, depending how things heal, it's a fruit that doesn't get hit. Growers can salvage. But yeah, there are some growers that have been hit quite badly with larger hail and 100% of their fruit.
11: If fruit can't be sold whole and intact, are there some other options? So you mentioned juice there. or Are there other, some other processing options?
3: Correct, yes. Yeah. So if there is any opportunity for processing, it really depends on the processes if they want it. And then, the, you know, growers need to try and keep any sort of rots out of it to make sure that it's still suitable for processing. Plums are a difficult one. There that, that doesn't seem to be much options for processing when it comes to plums. At the moment but um, apples and pears there is it all just depends on what the price is and whether it's you know growers can get some return on their costs you know like growers need to at least cover the cost of harvest which is you know anywhere between 50 and 80 dollars a bin
11: The hail was then followed by quite a lot of rain uh, across most of the state across the past week. The Bureau of Meteorology actually put out a brown rot advice um, earlier in the week. What does that mean for fruit growers and is there anything that you can do to manage that kind of risk?
3: So most of the brown rot warnings apply to stone fruit, so nectarine, peaches and plums. Most guys will be looking at uh, fungicides to try and um, prevent the spread. And um, yes, yeah, so it really depends on how close the fruit is to maturity. So the more riper the fruit is, the more risk they are with brown rot. So growers will need to make sure that they keep pretty good orchard hygiene and sanitation to try and ensure that uh, the brown rot doesn't spread to their good fruit from the damaged fruit. The rain events really, the damage is fairly minimal though the most impacted growers could be some of the canning peach growers, may have some split peaches. But really the other nectarine and peaches for the fresh market hopefully won't be impacted too much. Plums will be impacted, but it depends on the varieties and I still expect that to be fairly minimal.
11: After the hail, there was a few days required to sort of assess the damage. Is it, is it a bit different with rain? Is the, is the damage a bit more evident earlier on?
3: Uh, rain, the damage can actually show up a few days later. <laughs> so certain varieties like amber jewel plum is, is a plum that's very susceptible to splitting and cracking and so is October sun but yeah it may take two or three days for that fruit to crack within the next sort of seven days growers will see if there's huge increases in brown rot and also uh, split fruit.
11: Have you been hearing anything about infrastructure or equipment I guess we tend to think of of just in terms of the plants or the um, the produce but is there any um, impact on machinery or netting or anything like that?
3: Uh, with the, with that hail event we've seen a, a lot of netting stretch so in some, in a couple of areas where there was so much hail the net really sagged. It did save the crop fortunately but, um, but yeah it's definitely caused a bit of stretching of net.
11: And from the consumer side of things would you expect the hail and the rain will have any impact on sort of shelf prices further down the line?
3: Oh look I don't think so. I don't think it'll have much difference. Obviously the last 12 months prices have come up slightly because of the hail from the previous season And I expect prices to stay very similar this year. And also one thing to think about too, some of the the trees that were impacted last year in um, December 2022, some of those trees were stripped of leaves and fruit and everything. The hail was that bad. If I look at some of those blocks this year, there's not much fruit on them. The yields are definitely going to be down again. Um, So I don't expect prices to increase that much or or decrease, hopefully. Hopefully not decrease. It's just I don't know what assistance is going to be, you know, for the growers impacted. Some growers have been impacted two years in a row. That's that's a very difficult situation when you visit those guys. It's yeah, it's rotten luck, to be honest.
1: Michael Crescera, he's from Fruit Growers Victoria and he was speaking to Fiona Broom. Twelve minutes to one. Well, a leading fresh food analyst says the two big supermarket chains have far less pricing power in the fruit and vegetable market than you first might think. Martin Nebone is the managing director of Fresh Logic and he says a range of independent grocers and the rapid growth of LD means the market is actually quite competitive, although he does understand why there's been so much recent attention on checkout prices.
12: Over the course of the last year, we've seen some higher prices in fresh foods as some areas uh, were impacted adversely by uh, climate, and uh, particularly for vegetables and We've also seen the increasing cost of mortgages for the 30% of households that have mortgages uh, chew up a lot of money. And so there's definitely a level of pressure in the households, and I think that that's led to uh, a greater concern and interest about where the household expenditure is going.
0: Now, there's been a lot of calls, as we've said, about this inquiry, and a lot of the attention seems to be on the supermarkets and their pricing practices. I suppose, what's your thoughts on how that all operates?
12: I I think At times, Pew, uh, the competitive environment the supermarkets work in is not well understood, particularly with fresh food, because they're dealing with um, a substantial specialist retailer sector, butchers, bakers, fishmongers and fruiterers, and they are competent uh, in this marketplace in Australia, and they give the supermarkets definitely a run for their money. So to think that in fresh food, the supermarkets can just set their prices and disregard each other or those independent uh, specialist operators, uh, I I think is not right. I think that uh, the the price setting is very much a a some of those competitive dynamics. Let's not overlook the fact that we've got a very competent competitor come into this market just over 20 years ago. And they have opened and successfully operate nearly 600 stores. So if the competitive bar was down, it's certainly a lot higher than what it was 20 years ago. And, um, you know, those three supermarkets need to watch each other quite carefully because the mix of real estate that we have in place means that in many locations, people can park in one place and shop in two or three supermarkets. So the competitive alternatives are ready and available.
0: So you 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 say basically that it is a competitive market, which uh, uh, with the commentary at least, it, it's that seems to not be the general consensus. If you know what I mean?
12: Well, yeah, I agree. That's that's what I get from the commentary. But let's look at something like fruit and vegetables specifically. The the fruiterers or the greengrocers would hold twenty percent market share, which is a meaningful market share. And most major supermarkets have got one at the front door. Now they can source inventory when they want whenever they want uh, through central markets and they will compete directly with the supermarkets and you 've got about twenty twenty five percent of supermarket shoppers walk through the supermarket and then go and shop at the greengrocer so i 'd call that a fairly a fairly high bar in terms of competition and if the retailer involved disregards the fruiter or another supermarket in proximity, I think they would see it in their sales very quickly within hours typically
0: and then I suppose so the the attention at the moment on you know perceived high fruit fruit and veg prices you know, would in your opinion, could you put that down to normal volatile fresh food markets, and I suppose just general inflation then
12: well there 's not much inflation in fruit and veg it's the price is set by supply. And uh, if supply changes, it'll be reflected in the wholesale price, and that pretty much flows straight through to retail. So, and it has been changes in the availability of supply over the last eighteen months that caused a lot of volatility, and therefore shortages of supply means that prices go up.
1: Managing Director of Fresh Logic, Martin Kneebone, with Hugh Hogan. Meanwhile, a state, a Senate committee, I should say, on supermarket prices has been established to inquire into and report on the price-setting practices and the market power of major supermarkets, which we've spoken about here on The Country Hour before. Uh, Farmers and National Party members say that doesn't go far enough and are calling for an ACCC inquiry into supermarket prices due to what they say is a disconnect between the price farmers are receiving and what shoppers are paying. And former Labor MP Craig Emerson has been appointed by the government to review the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct to ensure consumers are getting the best possible deal. And I've just received this email from the Nationals WA, who are also backing calls for an Australian Competition and Consumer Commission inquiry into fruit and vegetable pricing in supermarkets. Leader of the Nationals WA, Shane Love, has labelled the unfair pricing disparities as a form of exploitation of both farmers and everyday West Australians. Six minutes to one, six minutes away from the news at one o'clock. Just before the news, this year's satirical Australian lamb ad was released this week and it's all about the generation gap. Produced by industry marketing bodies Australian Lamb and Meat and Livestock Australia, the annual advertisement aims to boost lamb sales during summer. And no matter which generation, baby boomer, Gen X, millennial or Gen Z, everyone is made fun of. Annie Brown has the report.
12: Good morning, Town. It's a beautiful day to be 60 to 78 years young.
13: Where the new year brings a new ad from Australian Lamb and Meat and Livestock Australia. Known for its satire, this year the ad is targeting the different generations across Australia.
0: Slay. I just feel like no one pays attention to Gen X. We've got so much to. S- I don't care what they do. Just not in my backyard.
13: Hey!
3: Hey, dad. This is their fault! Don't look at us. We're
2: literally perfect. Typical young people.
0: Everyone gets a trophy.
13: We were kids! You bought us the trophy! Stop gaslighting us! That's not what that means! Dance up! Dance up!
0: Is that lamb? Lamb. You know, when I was a kid, we'd have lamb egg. Lamb barbecue? Lit. Well,
1: at least we can agree on something. The generation gap, it's closing.
13: Domestic market manager at MLA, Graham Yardy, says the generations have more in common than what we all think.
7: I guess looking at some of the conversations through the year, we, we really saw this narrative around... Uh, in the media around it, the differences between the generations and um and so this was the idea behind it the generation gap that there is this uh, this gap widening between all the generations and um but when we sort of go a little bit deeper what we really understand is that actually we there's a lot more similarities between us and that's a really um, you know important observation that you know um, that lamb can play to. It's the, it's the great protein that brings everybody together. So, um, you know, what better, what better thing this year to do than bring the generations together over a, a lamb barbecue?
13: The ads every year, there's always a good amount of satire in them as well. We can all have a good laugh at ourselves. Generally, though, what are the aim of these ads, though, that you bring out every year?
7: The aim is actually to... Uh, Ensure we 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 sell more lamb for for producers. That's our that's the number one goal. So we we take that very seriously and and track that right through the campaign. And what we see from this campaign is, you know, and normally we see uh, you know in the last well in the last few years we've seen an, an uptick in in volume, usually between fifteen to twenty percent um, on a on a regular week uh, through the campaign period. So. We definitely want to see that, you know. On the, and we've worked out this really great model where providing the, uh, you know, really entertaining ad, getting people to watch it, and then, uh, you know, working, you know, with all the the customers of Red Meat um, to make sure there's things like, you know, Red Meat on menu and it's in store and it's available.
13: How much does this campaign cost to run?
7: Uh, well, you know, what I can say is this is the this is the number one activity for Lamb. This year you know it's not small change but as I said it sort of pays itself uh, off in the in the first usually in about the first two weeks of the of the campaign
13: so we're talking millions of dollars
7: it, it, it is in that realm yes <laughs>
13: okay I guess in terms of in terms of an ad in terms of lamb um, and consume consumption of lamb at the moment you said you've seen an you usually see an uptick in consumption from this but generally overall what kind of data do you have around Australian lamb consumption at the moment? Like from the last year, are we uh, tracking upwards, downwards? What's the general feeling towards lamb?
7: Over the last year, we've seen a 22% increase in the consumption of of lamb, uh, volume of lamb. So, um, you know, what we've seen is obviously prices come back quite considerably over the... uh, over the last 12 months, which has actually helped, you know, there's been a steady increase, um, really for you know quite a long time since sort of 2014 on on land prices in the market. But as there's been more supply coming through, you know, we've seen that price come down, so much more accessible for consumers, and that's been more availability. So that's good news for consumers, and obviously, you know, they're they're talking with their wallets and in a Environment where the cost of living is going up, that's sort of bucking the trend. So I think we're seeing consumers really appreciate that.
1: Graham Yardi, he's the domestic market manager from Meat and Livestock Australia. And he was speaking to Annie Brown. You can see the ad if you haven't already seen it, just look it up on YouTube, uh, put a search in for lamb ad MLA, something like that. You will find it. It's about uh, 30 seconds away from the news at one. Just a reminder uh, no Mount Barker market today. It's a two-day sale, so all the details tomorrow. And this message just through from Annabelle Coppin at Yarri Station. She says, the weather feels like it's changing. We've had a few handy little storms this week. Nothing major, but enough to spread the cattle out and give everything a little bit of relief. And Annabelle says, let's hope the big stuff is coming soon. And uh, fingers crossed, because a lot of people are looking for some rain right about now. Good to talk to you today on the ABC right across Western Australia. Time for the news, one o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.